Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Kavazin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count. Well, uh, welcome everybody to a special episode of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Marvel Comics has long prided itself on basing itself in the world outside your window. Unfortunately, if you look out that window today, the world you'll see is a highly divided and unsettling one, which is why Dan and I felt the utmost urgency to address the topic we're going to address today. On May 25th, Minneapolis police arrested George Floyd, a black man, for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes from a deli. The video of the arrest showed one of the arresting officers, Derek Chauvin, using his knees to pin Floyd by the back of his neck against the ground, while three other officers looked on. Floyd cried out that he was unable to breathe, but neither Chauvin nor the other officers changed their actions. Floyd was rendered unconscious and died. In the days following the release of the video, protests erupted across the United States, uniting around the cry, Black Lives Matter, a movement that began in 2013 following the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting death of teenager Trayvon Martin. Black Lives Matter is rooted in the idea of campaigning against violence and systemic racism towards African Americans, especially as it relates to how various police departments from across the country engage with the African American community. In some parts of the country, elements of these latest protests have escalated into violence, and rhetoric from our federal leadership has seemingly further inflamed the situation at hand rather than calm it. Frankly, the whole situation is despairing, and personally speaking, it would be nice to look outside my window right now and see a superhero that can save the day, but that's not the world we currently live in. Dan and I won't pretend that we can solve these issues over a Spider-Man podcast, but we also felt compelled to respond to the death of George Floyd and rally around Black Lives Matter in a way that was relevant while honoring the integrity of the show we, we created more than seven years ago. While I'm sure some contingent of our listeners are not going to be happy that we're putting together an episode with such a political bent, but frankly, over the years at Amazing Spider Talk, we have frequently addressed the issues of race, equality, and social justice as they appeared in the pages of Spider-Man, while providing context for these stories and the times they were published in American or world history. So why should today, during a time of unprecedented sorrow and reckoning in our nation, be any different? We have entered a period in our lives where sticking to comics feels irresponsible. And if 30-plus years of fandom of The Amazing Spider-Man has taught me anything, it's that if I have even the slightest bit of power to make a difference in this world, even if that difference is just having a conversation, it is my responsibility to do just that. And I want to echo everything Mark said, as may be typical for an episode of Amazing Spider Talk. But I'll add this. Our aim here is to listen and learn. No one person can speak for the experience of our shared humanity or even for a race of people. Comics help me learn empathy and see the humanity and shared struggles that we all experience. Heck, it's the reason we all love Spider-Man. We love the idea that Peter Parker or Spider-Man represents the so-called everyman and our shared struggles to make it through life one decision at a time and one day at a time. In that way, Spider-Man is more than a character and more than a fandom and more than a multimedia property. He represents the value of empathy, the value of trying to be a better person, the value of being responsible when you have outsized power. In a situation like this, all that is in my power is to be empathetic, 
to listen to those who are affected by how race is handled in America and around the world, and to help support the cause of equality and justice. So to that point, this month, Mark and I will be donating a significant portion of our Patreon funds and any of the proceeds that we've earned from this episode to the Black Lives Matter movement. In the description of the show, you'll find a link to the organization's donation page. Donations can come in the form of time, money, music playlists, and so much more. So if you find it in your heart or ability, please consider clicking on that link and helping to support a cause that we feel is important. But we aren't alone, and this isn't entirely our discussion. So we've invited on two panelists to help us discuss the topic of race in Spider-Man. First up, he's one of our most amazing friends and the former co-host of the Ultimate Spin podcast. Welcome back to the show, Brian Jacob. Hey guys, uh, good to good to good to be hanging out with you again, and nice to be back talking Spider-Man. And yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Brian. And in his first appearance on Amazing Spider Talk, he's a freelance writer for DCUniverse.com and the co-host of the Questions We Don't Have Answers podcast. Welcome to the show, Donovan Morgan Grant. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you very much for deciding to bring us together for this discussion. I'm looking forward to it and I'm appreciative of the opportunity that we're doing this tonight. Well, thank you both for joining us. I know you're going to really contribute to this conversation in a huge way, and we're really excited to have you on. So, Mark, we've kind of assembled a list of questions that we want to use to spark conversation. Do you want to kick us off here, Mark? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, all these questions are going to be directed to both of you. So just kind of jump on in and we'll, we'll go from there. You know, pretty, pretty informal for the most part. But I guess to start things off, you know, as persons of color, how have you been able to relate to mainstream superhero comics and how has that experience evolved over the years for you? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I've been, been reading comics for, for most of my, my 45 years. And yeah, I don't, I don't know about like, relating to heroes as much um because they're you know growing up they're just fantastic and you know superhuman and i don't know if i i really related as such um trying to imagine myself as those heroes you know when it comes to like dressing up as them and seeing the costumes yeah obviously most of the mainstream superheroes are are white guys right so i think uh looking back and kind of thinking about it i guess that's one of the reasons maybe I was probably drawn to Spider-Man just, I mean, I know we've talked about this many, many times, and it's a theme that has come up again and again in the storytelling and certainly in the recent animated film, but the, the notion that anyone could be under that mask. And so I think that's that's how I, you know, kind of found an in or a connection. And as it's evolved over the years, I think the last I don't know, 10 plus years or so, as you know, comic comic book companies have started having new characters take on the mantle, you know, and trying to branch out a little bit and have characters of color take that on, which is a cool thing to see, but it's admittedly disheartening to see the negative reaction that can come along with that sort of thing. So there's almost a defensive feeling in a way and a shoulder shrugging feeling like, ah, what else is new, you know? So dealing with comments like, hey, get your own characters and stuff like that and kind of missing the point in, in a lot of ways, but... Yeah, I'm sorry that's not the most smooth answer, but yeah, that's that's a tough question, but hopefully that made some sort of sense. I don't know, Donovan, what do you think? Honestly, like how I relate to comic book characters was kind of just, I, I enjoyed them and I felt I saw, I felt like I related to them. I felt like I related to Peter Parker. 
it was a new dimension opened up to me in sort of my coming of age when Miles Morales was created because I was really excited for the idea and the response that it that it kind of birthed forth from other longtime Spider-Man fans and how a lot of vitriol came out of it really kind of made me take a second look at this sort of pop culture community that I thought was very welcoming to diversity because of the long history of certain characters and the enjoyment of certain characters. I, I, I soon understood that it was only the enjoyment of certain characters in certain roles. And the discourse over Miles Morales genuinely was sort of my sort of awakening in, ter- in, in terms of applying diversity to superheroes. And so I've since thought about characters in different ways and thought about them in different kind of avenues politically and how they resonate like when they're first created and how they resonate now. Um, I've started, I mean, I I since have then written about them. I've written about Sam Wilson, Captain America. I've written about, uh, obviously Miles Morales. I say, obviously, well, I have written about Miles Morales, um, and Peter Parker. And I think now my relation currently as, as of like right this moment is how they relate to, uh, criminal justice or interacting with crime or how they present storytelling that can be found the genre of like crime fighting. In the action genre, in terms of how that can be politically radicalized, or how that can be utilized by people with certain agendas, and how that can be told, how can how that can be used to tell positive stories. So it's 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 I think in the last ten years, it's been radically shifting from just yeah, I like these characters and these characters feel like me. To some people, they shouldn't, and so I've had to think about that, and I have been thinking about that every second of my life. So <laughs> that's where I am right now. That's really interesting. You know, so so taking this kind of like a broad view of superheroes in general, I'm curious, you know, obviously you both have an affinity towards Spider-Man. Brian, you had a podcast and Donovan, you've been on many Spider-Man podcasts and written about the character extensively. Do you guys feel like Spider-Man, you know, himself has been an accurate reflection of the world he was created in, like the the character and how he's been presented in media? You're asking if he it, if he accurately represents like 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 a young person, like a person who deals with the real world. Is that what you're kind of approaching? Yeah, yeah. Because right, so Marvel's just the world outside your window, right? You know, it, do you feel like that's a true statement? I think sometimes it is. I think that like particularly when it comes to like things like healthcare and you know income, uh, not not to just you know checklist certain political topics, but like I think there are ways which he can do, and then some t- some ways which I think is a little like. It can be a little cloying when Peter is given all these problems and, it, and it, a lot of it is presented as a result of his own lack of interest in certain areas of his life where some people don't have the luxury of of driving their interest towards other things. So I think it kind of goes back and forth depending on the writer, depending on the air, editor, depending on the era. Honestly, I, I think it's generally generally inconsistent. And I feel that like a lot of people enjoy sort of underdog, underclass Spider-Man, but he's not always that bad off. <laughs> Which doesn't mean that he always has to be like homeless, like in like the late nineties or whatever. But like, I think there are times where it can be laid on a little thick, and when that happens, it's not—it doesn't ring as true as as you might like it to. I think that actually like sums it up really well. And I guess it it also depends on where you're at as an individual, right? And where you're kind of coming to the story. If you're looking for something to connect to, and you yourself are an underdog type character, you're having a tough time in the kind of pantheon of superheroes. It is a little bit of a change to see someone else that's 
struggling a bit, you know, and depending on what sort of era or, you know, time period of Peter's life you're looking at, you know, if he's got money problems or school, you know, trying to catch up on homework and you can relate to that. Or if you're looking for escapism and he's got his own company and he's a global super uh, spy agent, you know, I guess it, it's also like what you're bringing to the table as a, as a reader. I mean, what about even just, you know, kind of going back to this, you know, the world outside your window thing. I mean, even just the, the environment that Peter is is placed in. I mean, you know, the fact that, I mean, it's very uh, specific that he's in Queens. Now, granted, this was Queens in the 1960s. But I mean, you know, Queens is still one of the most culturally diverse areas of the world. And I mean, do you feel like that's reflected in the books? I mean, you know, what's your take on that? Well, gosh, I mean, again, it's one of those things where I'm trying to think of off the top of my head, how many non-white characters are there in the pantheon of Peter Parker's supporting cast? Because he has a very, he's probably one of the best supporting cast in comics. But when I think of characters that aren't Flash Thompson or, or Gwen Stacy, it's like, all right, you have uh, Randy Robertson, Joe Robertson, Josh, for all of you <laughs> Top of Time fans. You have Shoshan. You have Philip Chang way later in like the graduate era, graduate school days. You have much later in like the Horizon Labs days where you had, I don't even remember those characters' names, like Sajani and Uwatu. Is that it? Honestly, is that, is that, is that really it? Is that, Oh, Glory Grant too. Hobie Brown, who who kind of comes and goes. I mean, he was he was introduced. He came back later on, and during the Stanley run. After that, when after the Stanley run, when 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 did he come back? Was it the, it was the nineties? Was it? I mean, most recently he was in that slot era, the volume five or four of the book. But yeah, I think he was briefly there in the nineties. And in Paul Jenkins' run, I feel like he played a major role. Yeah, I, I think Hopi mostly was kind of sidelined. I mean, he might show up here and there, but I mean, he was mostly sidelined until the Dan Slot run with with Parker Industries, right? I mean, so that was. But yeah, I mean the po- the point being, it's 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 not a terribly diverse cast, as great as the cast as it is, and that's always kind of struck me as odd. I mean, especially when you like compare it to the recent MCU movies, which I feel like certainly get the the you know the diversity of just the schoolies in. I feel more on the mark. Yeah, and I would agree. I would, I would agree because like especially in New York, and that was always kind of like not to turn it turn towards Miles so quickly, but when people were saying how can you have a half Latino, half black character? And it's like, it's New York. Like, do you know what New York is? It, that, that's, that's the thing that happens in, in, in New York, as opposed to, you know, 1962 in New York. Do you guys feel like there are moments that stand out to you in the history of Spider-Man comics where, you know, Stan Lee writing the book, there was always a kind of like a feature on social justice or equality, kind of in the background in some in some ways do, do you feel like uh, there are some moments that stand out as like a really good representation of that or like moments where you feel like they really mishandled you know race and equality within the pages of these books i'm sure you can make a whole list i know let's start well, with the yeah, good no i i, I, can, I can actually list this because I, I i wrote about it when i was lamenting way back when when sam wilson was first captain america he had that i believe it was the rick Miranda run where he was just, just fighting monsters and I thought it was a missed opportunity. I mentioned the Tableau time arc where you have like that kind of the protest going on and you have the, the character Josh who's, because like when they introduced Randy, they immediately contrasted him with another black student named Josh 
who was much more of a uh, characteristically radical character. He was calling Peter Whitey and stuff, much to a lot of hilarity. And, and the issue, like, they're protesting because, like, I think that, like, their rent was hiked up or something like that. So it wasn't that intense, but it was Stanley kind of dipping his toe into, like, unrest amongst campus that can kind of, you know, be seen aesthetically racial. But there's a there's dialogue in there between intergenerational black representation because you, you've already introduced Joe Robertson, Robbie Robertson, and when you're introducing Randy, and Randy, this is incredible, like he he accuses his father of being a sellout because because he works for Jameson, and he's like, you know, I, I got to live down you working for the white establishment. I you know you don't understand what's going on right now. And and Robbie's coming right back on. He said, "But no, I'm trying to fight for what we're all fighting for." And like, this kind of continues for a few issues. And you know, you can say a lot of things about Stan Lee. Many people have, but I do believe he was genuinely putting forth, and he was genuinely putting forth real black representation with real concerns and real fears and, and worries on the, on how the future of of black Americans would be in the '60s. There's a, there's a, there's a later issue where. Randy talks about dropping out of college and Robbie's like, Robbie's against it. And he says, like, like, listen, you have, you have um, all this opportunity to gain knowledge and, you know, we're in a war against want and need and without knowledge, you're a soldier unarmed. And, and Randy says, okay, but what about all the brothers who, you know, did it your way, who got their sheepskins and they still can't get, get out from under. What do you have to say to that? And Robbie doesn't have an answer to that. And so those are very fleeting moments, but they really do, they really do speak to, I think, some of the best writing Stanley had in ways that didn't involve Spider-Man or the Sinister Six. And they're, and they're fleeting because the book's not about them. But I do think that like that was actually a really, really great stuff that I, I appreciate that he'd written into it. Yeah, I was thinking about after Gwen's dad dies and this guy is running for district attorney, Sam Bullitt. And he's making his campaign about he's gonna he's gonna stop Spider-Man because Spider-Man is responsible for you know this horrible crime and Jameson is all over it like this is awesome and we're gonna endorse him and Robbie has issues with it you know because uh, Bullet is positioning himself as a law and order candidate and that's a phrase that's come into the national conversation as of late thanks to our commander in chief. But it's interesting because this is uh, Amazing Spider-Man, I think, 90 and 91. So like end of 1970, beginning of 1971. And Jameson is like, well, what's wrong with Law and Order? You know, we, we need to go back to the good old days. And that's that's how, you know, things were a lot better then. And Robbie throws it right back at him. He's like, for you, I mean, the good old days, Law and Order to me is like lynch mobs and, you know, bread lines and Uncle Tom's and, you know, all kinds of awful things. And... As the story goes on, Robbie, you know, does all this work and finds out that the guy bullet is being backed by all these uh, hate groups. And Jameson, there's a great scene where Jameson basically calls the guy into the office to pull the endorsement. And the guy, you know, it's, the language is pretty, I guess, rough and blunt for for that time period. But, you know, makes it makes it clear that, you know, he's clearly a racist and, you know, he's got issues with Robbie and he tries to push uh, push back on Robbie and Jameson's not having it. And it was kind of a cool scene because it's like, yeah, Jameson hates Spider-Man, but no matter, you know, no matter what racist law and order politician, you know, he's not going to stand for that. And so they kick him out of the office. And that was kind of a, you know, that's neat to see. And it's it's fascinating to me 
that that was, you know, 1970, like almost like, you know, it was like 50 years ago. And so today when you hear, you know, the critique of like, oh, why do we have to deal with all these, you know, social justice issues in my comics? Why can't I go back to, you know, the quote, the good old days like it was like they were always doing this. And so that was a that was a moment that stood out to me. And just one other quick thing, the wedding. And I love that Mary Jane's dress was designed by an actual designer, uh, Willie Smith, a gay black fashion designer, a real person. And just that was just like a matter of fact part of the story. And I love that. And I believe, sadly, he passed away, I think, before the issue even came out. But that was that was like a little like cool, cool thing that stood out to me even back then. I can also think of some bad moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so let's go into it. Yeah. Well, there's two moments I I I can recall. And these weren't in my I kind of read people talking about this later on. The Sin Eater storyline. It's a it's a favorite amongst a lot of readers. It's pretty pretty iconic, Death of Gene Wolf. It it's pretty conservative. And in 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 a lot of that ways, it's it's kind of harmless racially in terms of like, you know, okay, Spider-Man just wants to get the scene in here, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, by any means necessary. And you can see Charles Bronson in the panel. But there's like this character that's like this black priest character. And I think he's talking to Jameson. And there's there's a line about how, you know, even he was bigoted or, or, or you know, in his, in his youth or whatever. And he had to kind of see the light or whatever. And the whole thing, it's it's... It's a little broad, and I'm I'm I I don't expect people to to immediately agree, but like the whole thing kind of reads rather fraught because like th- there's this whole thing about like you know police justice and justice against you know uh, fighting fighting crime and and how do you interface with criminals and Daredevil is trying to fight on the side of you know leniency you know, not so much leniency but not as crazy as Spider Man is Spider Man's pretty angry that in that story actually it's actually difficult to articulate there's a there's an article on the middle spaces that gets into that by Oswaldo Oyola. This is really good. That can uh, express it much better than I can. But I also remember, I, and I believe this is during the, the Miles Round Spider-Man title when he came into the, to the 616 Marvel Universe after Secret War, where there was a scene of like this like YouTube blogger uh, or vlogger talking about like, uh, yeah, like, like his suit got torn. It's like, oh, Spider-Man, Spider-Man's a person of color. This is great. This is great. And Miles was feeling some type of way about it. He was like, you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't want to be like banded about like this. I don't, I don't want to be like represented it in a way which I feel like some sort of like, I don't know, some sort of unicorn or whatever, which I thought was, now that necessarily isn't bad, but I do remember people saying, where does Brian Michael Bendis get off writing what a black person feels about representing his race? And it's one of those things that is complicated. It's not, you know, racist or it's, it's or or bad. It's not like, you know, the thing that sunk the character, but it's complicated because he's he's actually gotten a lot of a lot of heat over just kind of telling the stories that he probably shouldn't be telling from his perspective. And I think that was also an interesting vector into the conversation of black superheroes and how they are represented, because, you know, on the one hand, I personally I read that and felt like how he felt like I don't want to be kind of banged about as some sort of like sparkling thing for people to look up to when they don't really know me. But on the other hand, it's like, well, would I feel that way in in that instance? And who is, you know, bald old Bendis to to say whether I would feel or not? Of course, I'm not Miles Morales, but those are two instances that kind of, that were a little more, that a little spikier that I can remember in recent memory. I always felt that moment was just very super meta, but maybe not in the best way. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he's trying to make a commentary, but it's like, well, wait, are you actually 
making that argument or 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 casting down those that say it's only there because of that. You know what I mean? It, it kind of created this weird kind of circular logic that I think kind of, I don't know, un, undid the, the general maybe in better intent of it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have, I have so much I could say about that. <laughs> I don't want to take up the whole show though. <laughs> yeah. But if, if I could just put this out there with, with regards to that. So yeah, I, I was really excited by that moment because it was the first time after how many issues that it seemed like they were actually going to get into race. Like the idea of Miles was great and exciting and new, and it caused a lot of real world conversation and, and even some controversy um, in some circles. But for the most part, Bendis just wanted to seem to want to treat him as just a regular kid. And so by the time they got to the, the run that Donovan was talking about and the costume gets torn and it, it becomes a thing. And then Miles pushes back on that. And I wrote about it at the time for, for your website and then uh, even talked about it on Ultimate Spin. I related to that because I kind of grew up being, you know, a minority in the Midwest and I was a novelty in a lot of ways and I didn't want to be. And Toni Morrison had this great saying, this great quote, paraphrasing, but it's basically in this country, being American means being white and everybody else has to hyphenate. And that's what I felt, you know, like, I don't want that. I just want to be me. I'm just a person. I don't want to be the, you know, brown kid in the class or, you know, Indian American or whatever it is. And, you know, so what Miles was saying is like, I don't want to be the, the, the line is like, I don't want to be the black Spider-Man. I just want to be Spider-Man. It's like, yeah, I get it. And then I thought that was such like interesting, complicated territory to get in. And to Donovan's point, it's also like, yeah, Bendis taking this on. Uh, I don't have a bad word at all to say about Brian Michael Bendis. I got to cross paths with him a couple of times. I got to interview him for our, our show. Easily one of the like nicest, kindest, most sincere, genuine, sweetest people you could hope to meet. But taking on a topic like this, it's... It's a tricky tightrope to walk, and I don't think he quite got there because that storyline did not go anywhere. And I was so, pardon me, I, I was so pissed off when it got to, I think it's like issue eight, where it, like the whole, that whole little seed, that little seeded arc, like that thread never goes anywhere. And then he suddenly has to kind of wrap things up because he's going to jump into Civil War II with the great image of, you know, Miles killing Captain America, thanks, and hands up in front of the White House. Awesome. But the whole storyline is wrapped up with like Luke Cage uh, and Jessica Jones. And like Luke Cage has to have this kind of older, you know, black guy moment with the young black superhero. And he says, you're the black Spider-Man. And he says, like, don't screw it up. What the, what does that mean? Like what? I mean, I don't expect a, a whole like nuanced treatise on you know race and identity in a 399 comic book i don't but what i that was such a botched opportunity and it felt like such a slap in the face um that one like that really pissed me off to that point i mean you know since we're talking about miles here i mean obviously you know going back to his creation i mean this was you know a cultural milestone for both spider-man and marvel and comics as a whole 
but you know there there are are some that kind of I feel relegate Miles's defining characteristics to basically boiling down to the color of his skin, and and you know I guess I don't know. Do you find that kind of characterizing to be problematic in any way? I mean, do you feel that this is something that could lead to claims of tokenism in any way? What's I guess you know how do you, how do you navigate with that? I wouldn't I wouldn't say that he's a token because he has he has his own title and he he always has. It's not like he's part of a team. Like it's not like his first appearance was in the Champions and he's the Black Spider-Man. I do think it can be difficult to immediately characterize him aside from he's the because if he's not the Black Spider he's not if he's not the Black Spider-Man he's the young Spider-Man. He's he's younger than Peter was when he got bitten by a spider. I think that how I tend to characterize him because you know, I've obviously I have seen and own Enter the Spider-Verse. I I followed Miles. I think I've followed Miles consistently since he first came out. I don't think I've ever just dropped his book. And I think how I characterize him is how he, as a new young hero, constantly takes to falling into the, the shoes of Spider-Man. Spider-Man, who's, who's always had a very, like, infrequently enjoyed reputation, this new, this new person, it's not even so much if he can live up to the name of Spider-Man, but if he can live up to the responsibility that his powers now just bestowed upon him. And he takes to it differently. He doesn't freak out as much as Peter did, but he also has needs that, that are, that are germane to his, his own life, which is, which you might imagine from different, all different, different kinds of characters and different kinds of legacy characters. But I think that like his anxiety and kind of stepping into that legacy helps characterize him. But a lot of how you can kind of signify him is, is him being the, the young black Spider-Man, which in many ways I find to be a much more relevant character. I love Peter Parker. He's he is I always say that like Spider Peter Parker Spider-Man is my favorite character on the days that Batman is not. So it's like any day of the week. But uh, I, I love I, I love Miles, but I would be lying if I said that you can characterize Miles by this, 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 and not just mention either his stingers or that he can turn invincible. Which isn't to say that he's a weak character. I just think that like well, I suppose an argument could be made for that, but I don't feel that way because I feel that like he is a character I can enjoy and know how he would respond to certain things. I don't know. I, I guess it's di- as I'm as I'm saying it now, it's difficult because I don't want to disregard people's criticism of how he's been characterized as you know a potentially token character because I don't think that he is. I don't think that he's been written that way. I think that all the writers who've written him have cared about him. But on the other hand, I think that there is a bit of like complacency. When it comes to introducing this character, okay, now now what do you do with him? Well, they brought him into the main universe. Well, now what? What does that mean exactly? And I, th- and I think that that was actually a big letdown because after being brought back brought into the main Marvel universe, he's not really he's hardly interacted with Peter. Yeah, Slot had him in an issue or two, but like generally speaking, it's like wouldn't Peter invest more time into this guy because he's been where he has been, and wouldn't that itself give different experiences between a white Spider Man and a black Spider Man through contrast and comparison? I think there's a lot more to do with Miles. I, I really enjoy him as a character, but I think that he's not peaked in terms of his character potential. And you know, some of that can be racial. Uh, like I love the the notion of the character of Miles. And I've been like a big fan of that and a champion for that. And Dan, you and I have talked about it. Like it took it seems like it took a long time to ever kind of get to know him as a character and 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 realize him as an individual because he was the black Spider-Man or the young Spider-Man or just even worse, like the other Spider-Man. Like we already have one, you know, uh, especially with the 616 merger. But 
like we've talked about it, like how would you, like it was a real struggle. Like if you go reread some of the earlier stories, like how would you define Miles without talking about his powers? Like what are his interests? What is he into? You know, what does he like to do? How, how are things going for him in school? You know, his other classmates and Ben is really like he had him hanging out with Genki and that was it. And just like things about his identity were just kind of case in, like were strange in some points, like a case in point. And I believe this is like Bendis being completely naive and accidentally just kind of blundering into this. But Miles's dad's name is Jefferson Davis. And you should look that up <laughs> if you don't yeah. know who is, because, you know, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederate States and a big, you know, like what parent would name their kid that, you know? So that, I, I, I think that was just, you know, again, it's like, you know, you're writing what you know, but if there are things you don't know, it's, it's going to come out in, in weird ways. So, yeah. So trying to figure out who Miles is as a character, you know, when the first relaunch happened in the ultimate universe, like kind of the last gasp for those series, like right away, Peter Parker comes back. So like you can't even launch him in his own book without comparing him to the original. And we went through several issues of that before Miles had to sort of earn his title again. And then they bring him into the 616. And the first series is like, what, what do you call it? Like Blackheart and a bunch of like superheroes that are all knocked out and Peter Parker, Spider-Man yelling at Miles like, well, what did you do? You know, you screwed that up. And that's like, again, like the constant comparison and not letting the character stand on his own for so long. He's constantly in his shadow. So it's like he's not getting the chance. He's always held back in his own book, which just struck me as really weird and odd and, un- and unfortunate. It's not a good, it wasn't a good optic and frustrating for me as a reader. Do you believe that it's been a missed opportunity for Marvel that until recently there was never a woman or a person of color who was the main scripter for like a major Spider-Man title? I mean, it, you know, I guess the Miles Morales book that's going on right now is really kind of the one major exception uh, to that rule. I remember, I think uh, Eve, oh. Eve Ewing did Marvel team up, didn't she? She had, she wrote Peter and like Kamala Khan. I remember. That is true. That was a six. Brian Edward arc. Hill, yeah. I think wrote an annual and I actually yeah. had somebody come to, come to me as a side of my DMS and say, Hey, a lot of people are happy that like Brian Edward Hill is the first black writer to write uh, miles. Is that racist towards white people? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> no <Nah>, man. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think that like black characters need black writers at least once. I, I mean, I don't, I don't care because because you have a lot of great writers do justice to characters of color. You have Tony Isabella on Black Lightning, Don McGregor on Black Panther, Greg Rucka on Renee Montoya and Gotham Central. So, but at the same time, it helps to have somebody who knows what they're talking about. That can, can can grant a level of just just you know just not miss anything and not come off as like performative in a way. It's just it's just kind of easier to kind of, kind of pre- presume that. But you know, not, which isn't to say that like all like like black writers and black characters can do great things. That's not true at all, either, either. But like there's no there's no wrong way to like you know have a black character on a on a black writer on a on a on a character. I just wanted to add. I don't know if you guys have ever read this. I grabbed it off my shelf. I don't know if it's showing up. But the novel, Miles Morales, Spider-Man by Jason Reynolds. If you haven't read this, read it. This was an incredible opportunity. And I think it just got 
understandably overshadowed by Miles's kind of wider launch to the public consciousness with the Spider-Verse movie. But this book, I, I loved the hell out of this book. It filled all the gaps for me. You know, everything that I was missing in what Bendis was doing with the character, Jason Reynolds did an incredible job of fleshing out Miles and his world and his supporting cast and dove deep into life as, you know, a black Latino kid living in Brooklyn and life at uh, Visions Academy and, you know, his social circle and, you know, dating and race and identity. And it leans really well into those notions, especially of race and identity. And the book is written in a way that it doesn't conflict with any sort of established comic book continuity. So there's no references to Peter Parker as Spider-Man. There's no references to the Avengers. So they could all like be floating around in the background. That's fine. This is Miles in Brooklyn. I highly recommend the book. You could read it in like a day or over a weekend. It takes this character and just makes him a real person, a real individual. Jason, I believe, wrote like a short story, I think, for an annual or something like that. I would love it if he could come back and, and write for Miles in the comics properly someday. Now, Brian, I, I have that book and I I liked it all right, but like he's hardly Spider-Man in that book. Like he suits up once, then then at the end, but like most of it's just kind of like him trying not to use his powers and get caught throughout school. I mean, I was I was a little surprised. How I was like, "Where's Spider Man?" <laughs> Did you have any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think to me, it's like there there's you know there's some cool action scenes for sure, but there's action scenes for Miles out of costume. And they're actually quite funny, some of them in a way, like using his powers in interesting situations. He gets. You know, Genki rubs him into a pickup basketball game that goes a little wrong. And, you know, he's got to use his powers to get out of that situation. And there's, you know, a fight or two that happens. But to me, it's like the name of the book was Miles Morales, Spider-Man. And even this beautiful cover by Kadir Nelson, it's just, it's about the kid underneath the mask. I mean, even the the, the image is the mask pulled up and understanding this uh, character as an individual that's not... He doesn't need to be compared. He's not Peter Parker, and that's the whole point. But he is Spider-Man. And all those, you know, the core concepts of power and responsibility, they're there and they're woven throughout the book, not just as a superhero, but as a student, you know, at a prestigious school and the opportunities that come with that and the responsibility that comes with that, being part of a family and how, you know, expectations of him as a son. And there are some other things that happen for him in the story that kind of test those notions I thought he did a beautiful job with the character. And so, yeah, no, I, I get your point about the Spider-Man stuff, but when I, you know, went to this novel, it's like, I've like, how many times can I see Miles zap someone in a Bendis comic, right? Like I get it, you know, or, or punch someone out, you know, I wanted to know the person behind the mask. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's such a great, interesting story and, you know, well-crafted um, piece for the character. And it just got lost, you know, in kind of the ocean of media that we, our current media environment that we live in. But if anyone is checking this out, listening or watching, I'm just going to recommend it. Like, I, I think it's absolutely worth your time. I was shocked, but <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was an interesting read. I did enjoy it. 
So, you know, that's a really modern piece of writing, you know, from a a black writer. I'm curious, like, I think about like Jerry Conway's original run in the comics where he depicts black people and the language he uses is really inelegant. And, you know, Jerry has apologized for that. And, and, and I think, you know, has made amends, you know, as time is, and as he's grown up, how do you guys approach reading like some of that old material, you know, and you get to it and like, you know, what, what is the feeling you get when you read something like that? I was deeply, deeply offended. No, it's, it's honestly, it's funny. Like, honest, I really do genuinely enjoy like the early Joe Robert, Joe and Randy Robertson stuff. But like whenever I read Josh and he just like hauls off and calls people whitey all the time, I just laugh. <laughs> and like, it's not that like people didn't do that, but like, it's like, because if you read the sequence of events, like Peter is just like, I don't know, this is such a good idea, Josh. And he just like, just smack, just yells at him. And I remember, because Conway, Conway did not create the rocket racer, right? Wasn't that like Lin Wein or yeah it was len we yeah len ween and yeah len and then later marv wolfman worked on him a bit so i remember i i was a teenager when i first because I, I i used to my education came from the essentials i gobbled all those essentials up so when i first got to like the rocket racer i remember there's a cop in the car describing oh there's there's a there's a a youth on on a on a motor powered like skateboard and they called him like a negroid and i was like i never heard of that before <laughs> Wow, like, like, I guess he looks like a robot, but like that was surprising. I mean, I I don't really, I don't know. Like 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 it doesn't offend me because it's just the way of the times. Like when when Sam Bullet, you know, starts calling Robbie names and stuff. I mean, he doesn't use the N word, but like you know, he calls him like Sam. He's, he's saying that to be offensive, and and Jameson reacts accordingly. So like, there are definitely times where like the depictions of the characters can be a, a bit dicey or problematic, but like. I think that's kind of the extent of it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if, if I can read old Spider-Man comics and be offended. Cause it's not like I'm reading, like, you know, it's not like when you read golden age DC stuff. Like if you read like Captain Marvel or slash Shazam, you know, there's literal monstrous minstrels in those, in those comic books. And if you read like, you know, any old, you know, where like the, the comics are kind of anthology titles, you would have like, you know, these crazed depictions of Africans and stuff. Whereas the sixties, they were a bit better with that. And even if they were kind of misguided, you know, in terms of how the dialect would come off or even characters like Luke Cage, who I've always been a little uncomfortable with originally. I I know it's the way of the times back then. I know it was an effort to kind of put something forward rather than be entirely cynical with, with, with that character. I mean, Night Thrasher is another character, but like by and large, I think there was a, there was a stronger effort in the sixties and seventies. There might've been in the late eighties or something. Anything to add, Brian? It's really of its time. So I just look at it like that and I can just roll my eyes. It's just cartoonish and, you know, writers just emulating what they, you know, it's, it's a, it's a caricature in a lot of ways. And so I don't, I I just take it for what it is. You know, I think we've, we've come a little bit farther since then. So, you know, I, I, I don't Mm -hmm. really think twice about it. And, and the fact that he's apologized, I mean, that people grow, people can grow and change and, you know, that's, that's what counts. So not to jump around our, our media a bit, but around the time of the, the casting of Spider-Man in the MCU, Donald Glover, of course, floated the idea of performing as Spider-Man in the new movie, which kind of led to this conversation about uh, race-blind casting in regards to um, Spider-Man, which then, of course, 
led to a bit of a furor online, as these things tend to do. So, you know, there there was a whole camp of people that seemed to suggest that they just wanted to see the character as you know, had always been presented in the pages of the comic. So I guess, you know, the question is, do you feel like race is a core element in the character of Peter Parker? I think it depends on... I do not. Uh, so. I'm sorry, I was going to go quick. I think it kind of depends on how you kind of come, up with, come out the stories. If you write Peter Parker as black, then the loss of a father figure means that much more to him psychologically and how people react to Spider-Man has a kind of a double entendre racially. Like, do they know that he's black? Do they presume that he's black? Like, have people ever presume that a Spider-Man is black? Like, oh, he's a menace. He must be black. Is Flash Thompson white? And does he treat Peter differently for for certain darker reasons? Or if he's white, how does he? How does his white privilege affect other characters? I mean, is is he always trying to mean well, or does he have innate biases that might come out when he is fighting the Rocket Racer? I think there are both ways to play it. Some characters can be race changed as long as you don't do that colorblindedly. Some characters can't. Like you would never presume to change. It's like the, the most pernicious argument is, you know, why can't we have a white Black Panther? Why can't we have a white Luke Cage? And it's like you're really not engaging with the subject matter in any sort of thoughtful way. You're just doing that. You're just saying that to win an argument. Because I remember thinking when, when the argument of Miles Morales came out. And people would start talking about like race bending characters. I really had to think like, what if my favorites had changed race? Like, what if there was a black Tim Drake, for instance? And I said, yeah, I, that would trip me up because I said that's not that's not how I came into knowing the character, which I think is human nature. That's that's different than what I know. But if it was the same character, just kind of changed, I would like to think I could acclimate to that just fine. I mean, I remember someone getting a quote from Stan Lee when Michael B. Jordan was cast as Johnny Storm, and he said that it was it was all right with him. I think someone threw that same question at him towards Spider-Man. He says, oh, I think Spider-Man should be, could stay the way he, he used to, he originally was. Which told me that like, Stanley will say whatever he, whatever people tell him to say. But like personally for me, I think if it's done thoughtfully, then it can be done well. But you, you, you got to have come, – come at it with, with a thesis and not just a random idea. I think that's that those are all excellent points. I, I think I was – you know, like my gut level reaction to Mark's question about it, like – when it comes to like casting in the film, like I really didn't see an issue with it because you mentioned, you know, Johnny Storm in the, in the Fantastic Four movie, but it's nothing new, right? I mean, there was that awful Ben Affleck Daredevil movie, but like Michael Clark Duncan was the kingpin, you know, you had Man of Steel and what's his name? Lawrence Fishburne was uh, Perry White. And way back in the 60s, when Adam West it was, and Burt Ward were climbing up walls as Batman and Robin, like Eartha Kitt was Catwoman. And the world didn't end. So, you know, I didn't really, I've, I've never really seen an issue with that sort of thing. Like, I, I know there was, you know, certain corners of fandom that got a little bit out of shape with, you know, MJ and the current MCU Spider-Man uh, series. I thought it was cool. Like, it, it didn't. Didn't really bug me at all. What did bug me was uh, appropriating Bendis's character and renaming him Ned Leeds. But what are you going to do? No, don't get me started. Oh, that's another that's another Bendis name thing. I just want to mention when I was actually speaking with Jason Reynolds, he pointed out that Enki is not actually a name. There's that's not a name. Like Bendis just <laughs> made that up. And when we talked to Bendis, Bendis said he got it from his daughter. His daughter in like preschool or whatever would always talk about this kid, Genki, in her class. Genki, 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 Genki. And Jason Reynolds figured out like, no, it's Japanese. G-E-N-K-I, Genki. 
Oh, so it is it is pronounced Bendis Genki because that's always a debate. Yeah, so Bendis is always no, it's Genki, but they're like G A N K, like that's <laughs> there's actually a part, a whole thing in the novel about names. And so, but Genki's like, I don't even know what this means. Like, how the hell did they come up with this? So. so, taking a hard swing in another direction, you know, I guess, and more towards kind of current events, there's this notion of the fascism of superhero comics. The, the idea that superheroes present the idea of this like Uberman, a person with gifts who can take the law into his own hands, whether for the causes of like social justice in some you know places, personal revenge or flights of fantasy. Do you think the growing interest in superhero stories has led to adverse effects, including perhaps the perversion of vigilante justice? I, I think about that a lot lately because when you – kind of think about the 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 average action story and the average superhero story there's a lot of you know there's a lot of glass breaking there's a lot of punching there's a lot of bones breaking and there's there's a lot of bravado bravado over that it's like you know i don't know it's it's like uh whenever heroes are mad it's like when he was like oh, oh hold on you know you're, you're going too far it's like it's more than they deserve it's like they get to say that because of the protagonist of the story you know, it's, that's not that's not cause to like say you're a maniac, and you you're carried through that line of thinking because they are the pregnancy of the story and because of action story action story the traditions of action storytelling. But lately, it's just like you know, I find it to be rather, I find it to be rather nefarious just to, to get all you know nerdy about it in a way because I. There doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, thoughtful responsibility in kind of portraying how, of course, this is like, you know, fictional storytelling. So none of this is real. But I think a lot of, you know, one thing we talk about on, on my podcast, QNOA, is that like culture doesn't create society because society creates a culture, but culture reinforces society. So if people think that like, you know, vigilante justice, if, if they know, if they tacitly agree that it's, that it's illegal, they can still say that like, well, Okay, but like the circum- certain circumstances demand it. You know, Gotham is messed up. That's why Batman must be a, a, a cause to intercept. But that does that, you know, does that mean like you're actually breaking people's bones? Does that actually mean like putting people in the hospital? Does that actually mean like like inflicting violence with abandon? And I think with Spider Man, Spider Man is not really a violent character, but he has had every like f- 10 stories there's, there's something where he gets mad and starts just wrecking the place up and we know that he's just knocking them unconscious he's not he's not he's not really killing anybody but like there is the idea that like you know a man who can like press 15 tons when he tries is really going off and that's and that's something that's never really investigated you know not that we need some sort of maudlin story where peters feels bad all the time about that but there's there doesn't really seem to be a balance in that and i think I honestly think that's a that's that's a real problem. I think that you you do need a consistent morality with superhero characters because superhero characters are essentially police. They are. They go after criminals. They investigate criminals. They break laws to stop who they deem to be criminal. They go into other countries and, and other places to do what they think is right. They always combat efforts to limit their power. They try to do the right thing, but the right thing is always subjective to them. Now that's the that's the that's the sort of the agreement we have with superhero stories, but it does reflect into into people's real life politics. Honestly, you see people going off with their right to bear arms and their right to do what they feel is necessary, and it always conflicts with people who are more vulnerable. It always conflicts with people who have have a different 
standard of 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 understanding, and that that can lead to violence, or that does lead to violence. I'm not saying that somebody's going to read a Marvel comic book and then go off and hurt somebody necessarily, but people really rationalize violence through I I think media that they're used to, media that doesn't uh, think that that a certain violence in a certain context can be rationalized, and you know. A lot of this can become become more complex, and I'm not necessarily saying that you know video games are the cause of school shootings, or Commando is, is the cause for like you know or terrorists, or whatever precisely. But I mean, think about it. I mean, people will talk about like like the the if you compare like you know oh you can't show like sexuality, but you can show all the time the violence. Okay, well that that is an argument to show more sexuality. But think about the kind of violence that we do show, like like what what consequence does that carry because you can't just say none that doesn't make any sense things have consequences whether they're you know they're neutral or not so i i'm thinking more more these days because you see people rationalizing what happened to george floyd like just today i was told that candace Owens kind of went off saying oh he has this criminal background six years ago and oh he did oh he did this trying to make sense of the fact that you know it's, it's a good thing that he died because if he broke the law then he that 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 that's that that, that necessitates a death sentence which is severely messed up because that's not how human beings operate outside of outside of like the natural order you just don't kill somebody just because they went against something that we already agreed we shouldn't do if a kid if a kid steps out of line in school you don't bodily harm the child you don't kill the child as as a result of how the rules go so i think that i think that comic books and superhero storytelling could be more responsible they could be more thoughtful in the future and I, I like to think they would be i think right now i'm not trying to suggest that they're part of the problem but they're part of a culture of media violence that that has just not really thought about what it means when they depict that kind of violence it's just it's not been very considerate and i think it, it could help a hell of a lot if they started to be yeah i just want to you even see police uh, officers sorry yeah, I wonder I wonder if we're going to say the same thing actually because I was thinking about you know what's going on right now with you know tensions escalating between citizens and law enforcement and just thinking about heroes and vigilante justice and people like you know a lot of white people like brazenly just openly carrying weapons like assault rifles and just like kind of standing on patrol they're not law enforcement officers but there's a <laughs> a fascinating and unsettling fascination with the character of the Punisher. And you see that logo a lot on shirts and, you know, stickers on vehicles and things like that. And it's strange because that's a character I enjoyed reading as a, as a kid. And now that logo just makes me really tense and uncomfortable when you see it kind of out in, out in public, like always smile at someone wearing a Spider-Man shirt or, you know, Batman shirt or whatever, but like the Punisher logo to me has become something a lot more sinister and aggressive and, and just unsettling and uncomfortable. That's, that's one character I can think of in particular. I sorry, Dan, I don't know if that's where you were going when you were starting to talk about police. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you nailed it. I want to try and end this on a, I guess a somewhat uplifting I don't want to say uplifting note, but try and give us an opportunity to kind of get out of the the realm of of, of fascism. So, in in times of great uncertainty and despair, like of which we are currently living in, I mean, are there any lessons that you feel you you've 
have gleaned or can glean from the pages of Spider-Man that, you know, maybe could either bring comfort or just kind of inspire or, you know, just things that, you know, you kind of go go to go to the well for, I guess, when things kind of get dark like this. I, I think a lot about power and responsibility. I think about that all the time and and how that translates to to privilege and the position that, you know, we all happen to find ourselves in. I think about that. And I think about just Peter Parker as a person or Spider-Man, like everyone has a story. And so we'll read these stories or watch them and, and really get into them and think about them. We can do a lot more of that with the people around us. I think there's like, we might be a little bit behind on the, you know, a little late getting started, but get started. And and just, you know, you're, we're having conversations like this and like, there's so much out there to to learn from. And, you know, maybe just an extension of that, like we read these stories, like we can do a lot of reading, like, yeah, it's great to talk with people, but people who, you know, kind of live these realities, like it's exhausting. It is so draining to, to walk through life and know that your life is not entirely yours. And it's as exhausting as that is, it is exhausting to have to explain that to people even well-intentioned people who genuinely want to know. So I would say when it comes to, you know, taking positive lessons out of, you know, power and responsibility, like if you're in a position, like you can educate yourself. So, you know, we were talking about some black writers that have, you know, written for, for Marvel, for Spider-Man, you know, so we mentioned Jason Reynolds, pick up his book, All American Boys, that he co-wrote with Brendan Keeley, or his book, Long Way Down. You know, we mentioned e-viewing, Check out Ghosts in the Schoolyard about the school system in Chicago or her book of poetry, Electric Arches. I don't think we mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, obviously writing, you know, Black Panther and Captain America, but absolutely, absolutely, if you haven't already, um, please read Between the World and Me. And these are, you know, kind of young, younger uh, Black writers, incredibly powerful voices, you know, speaking to the moment. That's a helpful perspective that I think like we have the power to access that information. We have the responsibility to do that. Like we can have all the conversations we want, but you know, it's, it's on us to, to, to get educated. So that's, and I mean that in a positive way. So I, I hope that, hope that's uh, of some help. Did you uh, repeat the question one last time? Yeah. I it, just, in terms of, you know, in times like this, you know, are there any lessons that you, you find yourself leaning on from the pages of Spider-Man or just, you know, points of inspiration, things you can kind of glean to kind of get you through, go to the well for, I guess? I think just the perennial lesson of not, not don't ever give up. Don't give up. Peter Parker's had some horrible things happen to him. I'm thinking particularly like, like anything that's happened during the Paul Jenkins run. Remember when he thought that he, his neck was snapped and he was paralyzed? <laughs> Remember when Norman Osborn, you know, like brainwashed him and he was like, in a closet for like two weeks. And I love that. I love the Paul James run, but like, yeah, no, it's not to give up. I, I believe there's a quote from, I don't remember what issue this from, but I remember, I believe I read this from a Spider-Man, a Spider-Man comic where he said, you know, it's like nuts to this. I've had obstacles all my life and I've beaten them all. I hope that's Spider-Man and not Hawkeye or something, but like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do go to, I, I go, I go back to that. I go back to that. It's it's like you know you gotta you have to meet this that quote from um the uh, the master plan arc where he's like you know you gotta meet this challenge or otherwise you you don't 
you have to you rise up to the power that you've inherited. Otherwise, you don't deserve it. And that can be come down to your voice and your education. If you know things that people don't, that can help. You must express yourself and get that education out there. You have to. Because I'm finding that education is a, is a big factor in why so many people are misinformed and that leads to bad morality. But I, yeah, I, I think that like power and responsibility is such a great, such a terrific phrase for a character to be about that he can't go away from that. I don't care who plays him in the movie, and that's one that I think us Spider-Man friends, Spider-Man friends, Spider-Man fans, we have to hold ourselves to that mark and try to live that way. You know, we might be angry about the marriage, but at least we're not hurting people over it. So. Let's not give up on this, on what we what we're going for. Even even if it's even if it seems impossible, like stopping racism and uh, stopping br- police brutality, even if it means abolishing the police industry itself, as long as it saves lives, if it if it if it has to be done, we'll figure out a way. We'll we need to figure out a way to do it. It's crazy as it sounds, because that's something that we we're that, that's a, that's a task that's brought to us that we have to do. We have, we recognize that that is kind of put over our heads. Like, like machinery in ASM 33. So I try to think about it that way. Unfortunately, <laughs> it is that time, time for all the good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. And of course, a very extra special thank you to uh, Brian Jacobs and Donovan Morgan Grant for joining us to talk about this important topic. And you know, now if you guys want to Plug anything of your own, by all means, uh, have at it. <laughs> I am on questions we don't have answers. I, I co-run that with my partner in rhyme, Harrison Shoot, And that podcast is essentially political. We talk a lot about like things that we deem important, be that, you know, like, like politics and society, race often and in the future and gender a lot as well uh, even though we're, we're, we're two allegedly heterosexual men but because we're both nerds he kind of comes out a lot of his uh, perspective from a sci-fi fan and i kind of come over from a comic book fan so we often mention things like comic books or i do science fiction movies certain media properties and i think we've been doing a pretty pretty good job you can find us at kinoanswers.com and as also mentioned, I also am a writer on the DC Universe uh, website. You can find myself under news. Just look for my name. And also, I, sh- I, should, I should still mention that like I have done a lot of Spider-Man things in the past, but I also am a, still part of the, the Batman Universe website, where you can see me writing reviews and tutorials. And I've been an infrequent guest on the Backward Oracle Barbara Gordon podcast, hosted by Stella, because she's finally gotten into the Cassandra Kane series. I should check me out there. And thank you very much, everybody, for having me. I really much, I really appreciated the opportunity. So thanks again. No problem. Brian, what about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm just going to echo that. Thank you so much for inviting me to, to be part of the conversation. Uh, and Donovan, it was great to, to meet you and, and chat comics and life stuff with you. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I'm not actively working on any projects right now, but for four years, I did run a podcast all about uh, Miles Morales and Spider-Gwen called Ultimate Spin. You can just search Ultimate Spin on all the good podcast services. We're, we're still there. Our archives are up, including interview as interviews with the creators, including Bendis and Jason Reynolds. And you can also find that at ultimatespinpodcast.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at project underscore three seven.
Obviously, I, I want to say thank you again to both of you and to echo your plugs because Donovan, I've I've listened to many episodes of your show and really enjoyed it. And Brian, obviously, I listened to all the episodes of your show, Ultimate Spin. And, you know, even if you're not reading the comics anymore, like Brian's interviews with creators are amongst the best that I've ever heard. So I, I can't help but plug his show over and over again. The 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 previous sister show or brother show to to the amazing spider talk so thank you guys both for coming on the show this is a, a great conversation i felt as always this episode was edited by rick coast with production support from andy myers our artwork comes handcrafted by artists ron friends sal busema and ray sumzer our theme songs were produced by rylan bojack and spider madge and our animated introduction was created by josh sutton of the panels to pixels youtube show so if you missed out on our live stream, be sure to check it out in two weeks. And don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. So until Robbie Robertson follows in Jonah's footsteps and becomes the mayor of New York City, finally kicking the kingpin out of office and restoring peace and prosperity to the fictional city of Marvel's New York, what's our motto, Mark? With great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment. Have a good night, everybody. Goodbye.